hello everyone that is with us. Welcome, and it's great to have you here. We are here today with none other than Gary, and I'm going to butcher the last name. Sorry about this. Ogwasarwa. That's very good. So um, yeah. yeah, it's very close to the Spanish uh, type of pronunciation of the phonetics, but uh, yeah, Ogasawara is very good. Okay. Ogasawara. There we go. Yep. And none other than Bart, Bartholomew Farrell. And we are here to talk all things. Um, well, we're really going to be diving into what Claudian has been up to and the storage. And so I'd like to just start, I think, with how I usually start things off by Gary, you giving us a little bit of background on how you came to be the CTO of Cloudian. What was your trajectory like? How did you get into tech? What were you doing when you were hmm. a kid? And then what brought you here? Okay, I'll, I'll try to keep it a bit brief. I mean, you know, as, as a, a, a kid, I guess I've, um, you know, I've always been interested in uh, problem solving or I guess um, more specific way to say it is, um, you know, optimization. So how to, uh, you know, how to do things right. And, and then, um, and then uh, with computer science, right, and programming, it was uh, a very natural way um, to do that. Um, um, you know, it was sort of probably the early days of, of what we're seeing as AI, but um, I, I did my studies on, um, on decision theory and, and Bayesian decision theory. And, and uh, that has um, been very useful. I mean, then applied it um, to certain applications like um, autonomous vehicles and, and, um, and um, worked on ad servers and for uh, dynamic ad placement, display ads. And then um, um, it got into um, sort of fast forwarding more close to um, where we are now. We got into um, working for uh, wireless carriers building their server software that would store all their messages and all their mail. And that the hardest part of that problem we soon realized was the storage part. I mean, how do you keep all the storage and especially for mail and messages, it never decreases. It always just, people keep adding more and more and the economics, um, people wanna drive down the cost. So that became a really um, interesting problem where um, we felt or I felt that you know, the market felt the need and there was a lot of interesting technology that we could bring to bear there. So at that time, um, maybe about in the, in the 2010 timeframe, there was a lot of no SQL type uh, uh, work, very, very good work um, going on there. It started with Hadoop, but also um, with Cassandra, which uh, we use as a fundamental part of our architecture still today, and Mongo. Um, there's, so there's a lot of um, very good innovation going on at that time. And um, we jumped on that and uh, it's been really good to uh, start, um, start our, our tech stack and, and our work based on that level 
because even today we, with our object storage product, we're competing with products that were developed or designed earlier, which I think hamstrings them um, because they're using not the most modern distributed distributed um, computing uh, techniques. So, yeah. So, um, started out as you know, we were meeting at uh, my dining room table, in my house, and then um, um, I, I grew the engineering team. Um, last year, um, we wanted more firepower in terms of engineering management, so we hired a, a new VP of engineering to uh, replace me, and then I moved into this side role of um, CTO, and but um, continued to do. Um, a bit of engineering products and especially now uh, focused on um, two things, Kubernetes and um, one is, and the other is uh, machine learning and analytics. So that's what I'm nice. driving here at Claudia. Well, I know okay, Bart had a question. Yeah, you said, yeah, because since you just mentioned machine learning to go back mm -hmm. a little bit, um, in terms mm -hmm. of your academic background, UC Berkeley, you have a PhD, we could call you mm -hmm. Dr. Gary, that might be, okay, that might not be. <laughs> um, but specifically seeing that uh, just by coincidence, you focused on machine learning, but also uncertainty reasoning. Yeah, um, yeah. On a day like today, we've got a big election going on. Yeah, There's a lot yeah. of uncertainty. Dr. Gary, can you help us out? Oh, well, I, I have nothing specific, but um, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Nate Silver and 538. I, I definitely recommend everyone um, heading to um, that website, and and he's um, he's really good at taking uh, a view, meta view of all the all, multiple polls and combining them into a reasonable result, and um, and um, yeah, he's basically the first uh, website I, I look at each morning uh, recently. And, uh, you know, he's saying it's a 90% chance that Biden wins. So uh, we'll see. But he says, you know, 10% we'll is not zero, goes. as we all know. 10% <laughs> is not zero. That is what you, the statistician, I'm sure, knows better than all of us, right? So that's right. It's that's right. Now, so. <laughs> now let's uh, just talk a bit about what it was like for you to build your operator. Can you mm -hmm. give us a rundown on how that went? Well, um, yeah. So um, I could talk a little bit about our, our evolution of where we came from, first of all. So, um, so our product, um, you know, was not in containers and not using Kubernetes at all. And, you know, and that still is our flagship product. So, so we've come quite a ways of, you know, um, eight years and 500 paying customers and um, exabytes under management, right? Um, with that product, with no containers. Um, we, but we have been using containers for our testing. So, so it's really um, useful to spin up different configurations, right? You might have a... Um, five node configuration you want to do and then the next hour you want to do a 12 node configuration and just just doing different testing along there so we built up a lot of experience with docker and on that side but even at that stage it was no kubernetes and then we started um to see um a lot first first a trickle and then more and more interest from our customers and prospects of, you know, hey, um, you know, we're standing up um, um, 
a set of apps using Kubernetes and we like it for its um, ease of management, essentially, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy to use. And then also a lot of um, our customers started saying, you know, we like the security features of it. You know, we could wall it off. We, um, we could uh, do like regular reboots of, of everything once every day or once every week. And then um, we're all, um, we all get the same environment. So that, that, um, triggered us to start saying, okay, we have to start um, paying attention to this market and and investing and, and building something that will support the market needs there. So our first um, foray, it was to just build an operator. It was actually forked off the AWS S3, um, I don't know the correct, Name S3 bucket provisioner um, operator. And um, that allowed some Kubernetes applications to use the standard Kubernetes resources like um, CRD, secrets, um, um, to access our existing hyperstore software. So, hyperstore software is Cloudian's product for object storage. So, that was outside still. And that's um, that was released um, in this past summer and we've gotten um, some use cases of customers using that. But that in itself is very limited. And um, then in terms of how much Kubernetes can uh, manage the object storage software itself. So that's when we started um, a, a brand new product to deploy our object storage software as a container itself, right? So basically taking what we had been doing internally for testing and deploying that and, and then building a full-fledged operator um, to integrate with that. So um, um, that's, that's, that's where we are now. And that's, um, <clears throat> we, are, we have announced that and plan to launch it um, in December of our integrated um, production ready um, operator with um, our hyperstore software as a monolithic container. So, so that's where we are um, right now. And then where we see going forward is that we'll continue on this and instead of having a monolithic container. So what I mean by monolithic container is it includes everything that would be put on a physical node of our software. So that includes um, CentOS, it includes um, a bunch of different uh, services all running inside that single thing that makes it easier to um, manage. But then as we go forward, we want more flexibility to take advantage of um, a container infrastructure where we could spin up say, Say we need five S3, um, S3 services, but we only need say two um, you know, storage services, something like that and do it dynamically. So, so that's where we, our, our roadmap and our plan for the next you know, year is, is, is taking us. Um, but so that's sort of almost uh, background. I, um, the operator itself has been uh, very um, interesting to me and, um, and it's doing quite a lot of 
different things. Um, so, so one is basically um, service creation, right? So it would, it would be able to take in and um, a, a, a CR saying, this is how many nodes I want. This is how much storage I want to provision. This is how much um, the different storage policies I would use. And then it would, it would create those pods out. Um, but the more, um, more interesting and sort of involved part of the operator is all the failure, failure management. And it's, it's been, um, it's been um, quite interesting to, to do the different types of failure management in that. Um, so, um, well, I, I could talk a lot what, more about the failure Yeah, can you dive into but, what that is a bit more? What is this yeah. failure management and what was it like creating that? Yeah, hurdles, so... What? Right, right. So um, in storage, I mean, one of the one of the easiest ways to for us to think about it is that there's two types of things that could become unavailable, or two types of um, failure zones. So, so one is one is a whole node goes out. So, in a tradition, um, well, I should describe sort of how we are doing distributed um, storage, but um, there's two standard ways. So one is just replicas. So you might have three replicas of the same object across different nodes. And then another way is erasure coding, but erasure coding is basically the same thing. You just might split up a single object into say 12 or, or six different pieces and store those on different 12 or six different nodes. Um, so one unit of failure is a node. So when we say a node, it could be the node, you know, exploded, or more typically, it's just the node is the network is cut, or some component of it um, is out that makes it, um, you know, unusable. Um, and then the other type of component is a disk. So inside a node, you have multiple disks, and they may be virtualized, or um, you might have a some sort of um, protection at the hardware level at RAID or something like that. But, but at its core, it's a, a single disk or volume. So back to the, uh, what the operator does with the failure management then is you have to think carefully about when each of those, when say a node is unavailable, what do you do, right? So, so the standard thing in um, Kubernetes would be let's just start up a, a pod on a spare node and, and then um, go, go forward and you know, all was good, right? We wanted three pods, we had two, we created one more and boom, we're all good. And um, you know, that, in principle, that, that's fine and it works okay and for stateless applications, but as people in storage well know, for, for when you're dealing with a lot of, storage and and disk that is a high cost mm. operation right you have to um you have to then migrate your data onto this new pod and mm. so so with an operator then you could think about what sort of knobs do you want to have or configurations or other other types of um, flexibility to allow the user to configure that. So one obvious one is how long do you want to wait before 
giving up on this node and then migrating it to a to another pod. Um, so in in what happens in in production systems often is you get glitches, right? Um, you know, someone someone turns off the power periodically, or you have a network glitch, and then um, your alert systems, monitoring systems, start beeping that this is offline. But then, you know, if you just hold off and wait three minutes, five minutes, then all's okay, right? So, so that's that's one type of control, right? That you want to have a simple um, what we call rebuild timer, and that's one of our configurations in our um, CR that you could um, set up, and it controls at the operator. Um, there's other questions about um, how does the operator assess whether the system is available or not. So in a distributed system, it's mm -hmm. not a trivial answer of just counting, um, seeing that all nodes are up or all pods are up or all pods are down. It's, you know, we're dealing with um, different consistency levels of data. So you might have a mm -hmm. strong consistency level where you um, want to make sure that what you read is what you have previously written, or you might be willing to have an eventual, eventual consistency model where it's not so um, critical um, that the data that you read has been written um, immediately as there, you might be able to be willing to accept the lag. So for um, our storage system, you could have multiple ones of these, what we call storage policies, all in the same system. So you could have you know, one set of S3 buckets say, you know, these are eventually consistent, you know, we're just saving them for log data, but these are um, banking transactions or other type of critical data that we need strongly consistent. And those are all overlaid and put on the same data um, on the same um, underlying storage. So nice. how do you assess that and manage that? So that's, that's a lot of the logic that goes into the operator. Um, naturally. So um, in our standard system, this would be at a more of a control layer, but with Kubernetes, we could take advantage of the Kubernetes um, sort of reconcile loop or, or the management loop, and then be able to um, take care of a lot of that at the operator level. So, um, so that's part one of the story. Um, <laughs> sort of, um, Please uh, interrupt me if I'm going going off uh, too uh, too much on a, a side note. But um, um, no, this is awesome. <laughs> okay, so so in the normal case, you have that simple question of you know I'm going to wait say one hour sixty minutes before um, migrating a pod, and then there's another question of you know um, maybe I don't even need to migrate that pod if I already have enough. Um, um, redundancy it, from my erasure coding and my storage policy allows it, then I'm just going to leave it and then wait for it to recover or, or wait, um, you know, we're doing alerting at the same time. So then we might want to require human or user intervention to decide what to do as best. Um, and then um, what if there is no spare 
spare um, capacity to um, spin up a new pod, right? Um, that's another question, right? So um, if you're if you're not dealing in a elastic, um, say, public cloud environment where you could just you know spin up a new new VM, um, this becomes a this becomes an issue, right? So in enterprises, they have you know fixed number of here's your 12 physical nodes, you know, that's all you have, right? So use it all. So if something goes wrong, then what? Right? So that's another question that, you know, we're, we're working on the operator to figure out and sort of parametrize what can be done in those different cases. Um, so that's on, that's one of the considerations for node failure. There's other things like um, cascading failures. So you're dealing with one, one pod failure and then another pod goes down. So what do you do then? So there's also questions like that of what to do, which um, you know, we're taking in all our experience from our large clusters and, and our um, production experience to apply to that. Um, but I wanted to get to the other part, which is kind of interesting is where a disk fails. So, so if you look at our um, object storage systems in production, this is the most common um, error condition, right? So disk die, right? You could see the survey that, you know, something like 2% of disk fail over one year. So when you're talking about storing petabytes of data, we're talking about disk failing daily or even hourly for, for certain things. So um, one aspect is you, you of course, design your system to be resilient to those types of disk failures through redundancy and, and um, even hardware raid and other mechanisms like that. So um, ideally you want the situation where the operations guy, right? He, he, want, he, he doesn't get um, beeped in the middle of the night, but comes in at 9 a.m. say, you know, this disk is broken, this disk is broken. Um, pop it out, um, sl slide one in, and, and um, you're all good to go until the next day. Um, so in a, in a Kubernetes sort of managed type environment, um, the operator needs to look at what happens when a disk fails as well. So I see a lot more in the Kubernetes environments where the disks are virtualized, where a single physical um, disk failure could affect multiple um, multiple virtual volumes, um, PVs, right? So, so there's different aspects of what we want to do there. So, for example, if a disk fails in a single node, and then um, there's spare capacity on that same node, we just want to you know, mark this guy as bad, this PV as bad, and just recreate, recreate a new PVC on that same node. And then at the worst case, if there's no spare capacity or if multiple um, PVs are bad, then we want to, again, think about migrating to a, a pod to a new location. So these are the types of um, logic that the operator um, is taking care of us taking care for us um, right now. So, um, so I would say, you know, for our operator, probably, you know, 90% plus of the 
sort of code and the logic is really around the, the this failure failure management and failure handling, which you know is as it should be, I suppose. Yeah, with that in mind, and you know, some of the things that we come across frequently in our community is why it's so intimidating for a lot of people to start even thinking about data on Kubernetes. Just to touch on something that I saw from listening to some other interviews of yours, uh, is your favorite book still The Checklist Manifesto? <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay. From Atul Gawande. Very, very, documents and yeah. find checklists all yeah. over the place. <laughs> sure. But with that in mind, one of the things that you talked about in that interview is how there are two types of fundamental errors, one of ineptitude and one of ignorance. In terms of right. approaching you know, data on Kubernetes, like I said, which is quite challenging, even overwhelming for some people, do you find that it's a lack of contact, which might cause you know, issues of ignorance, or ineptitude that we're talking about leveling up in terms of skill? Yeah, um, I would say it's more of the latter, ineptitude, and not in a sort of negative sense. It's almost in the sense that um, the problems haven't been thought about deeply enough yet. And I don't think there's that much. Um, I don't think there's, for example, there's petabyte level um, object storage systems managed by Kubernetes right now. Um, you know, we want to uh, fill that void, but um, I think there's um, still some, um, there's not the knowledge yet that of some of the complexities of managing such a large amount of, of storage underneath um, with that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I mentioned, you know, for storage administrators, one of the, um, one of the sort of never to do uh, rules is, you know, you try to avoid moving data um, because uh, moving data a lot of bad things can happen, right? I mean, you could have um, new errors come up, you could, um, you know, lose data in transition or, or, you know, a lot of, a lot of incomplete things, uh, new data is being overwritten on top of it, things like that happen. And um, those are the types of things that I think have um, to date been, um, I would say underestimated in the, in what I see in the Kubernetes um, data side. Uh, but you know, I would, I'd say you know that's that's sort of a natural and correct evolution. Um, you know, now we're starting to work and and uh, face these type of um, issues and challenges, and and I think it's good. So, I think um, you know this this community is 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 helping in that respect as well. So it's great. Yeah, that's definitely what we're going for because yeah. as you just laid out so eloquently it's not the easiest thing there's a lot you have to keep in mind especially for failure right when failure happens you need to be aware of how you're going to go about putting the pieces back together in a logical way and a way that gets everything back up and running like it was and you don't lose anything and mm -hmm. i'm just wondering when you talk about how there's not really these petabyte uh, sized object stores that are being managed by Kubernetes. Is that something that you feel is it's not happening because the market's not there or is it not happening because it's just too difficult right now? And it's, it's like, there are people that need to trailblaze a little bit like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, 
I think it's coming. So I think um, we've seen the advantages of managing apps using Kubernetes. So in particular, um, where I think this fits the best is with analytics. So, so um, for example, you know, um, like a simple like lidar um, rig on on a autonomous vehicle, you know, it's generating all this data, right? So, so that data needs to be stored, and then it needs to be analyzed. And these two, you know, one without the other, you know, doesn't make sense. So this is a type of thing that's just growing and growing in terms of volume and capacity and need from the application side. So, so um, having Kubernetes um, useful as a management layer and as um, um, to do things like um, RBAC and enforce, um, you know, um, security through namespaces and and other things, I think is a, is a very useful framework. Um, um, but um, I guess um, what I'm saying is that it doesn't sort of help with a lot of the under, underlying storage issue, the issues brought by and the comp complexity brought by with storing a lot of data. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that um, yeah, there's, there's a lot more interesting work to be done by by all of us yeah and that is i i just saw a question in the chat it magically disappeared i don't know if it it was answered and it no no was... sorry because I, I responded um oh, okay. yeah it's, it's from uh from asif thank you very much for your question asif and the question is um gary what are your thoughts on solutions like portworks um i think i think i think they're good they're they're all um very good um I, um, we've looked at that. I, 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 it's a matter of, you know, how, at one sense, um, you know, what Portworks and others are driving is, is open standards that where we could access a lot of, a lot of this data. And that's definitely where we want to go. So, um, yeah. Like you so, said, but by no means, it's not the only solution. I mean, we also have other alternatives such as open EVS. There are different things in terms of options, but just is, you know, what are the situation you might find yourself in when you might want to be considering those things? Um, yeah, a lot of it. So, so a lot of it of, I guess, you know, I have a limited view and a lot of it's just informed by what I see our customers and our prospects asking for. So a um, you know, a lot of it is just they want to avoid any, say, vendor lock-in, right? They want to be sure that whenever they have anything storage, they have some flexibility of being able to, you know, if this, if this um, vendor doubles its price next year, they want to have some flexibility and risk management to be able to switch off into something. So, so... That's that's the main type of consideration that I see coming out of uh, out of the market. I see the same thing with um, the public clouds. So so a lot of companies now are starting to realize that their dependence on you know say AWS, right? So it's not so much that um, it's a cost issue right now, but it's a more of you know. Um, say if I'm Walmart and I'm a competitor of, 
of Amazon on the retail side, you know, what do I do, right? I, I'm, I want to avoid this type of, this type of um, sort of dependency on one type of company or, um, so that's why I, um, the more and more that we could push a um, sort of plain uh, open source flavor of Kubernetes and, and how we can make our software work with with those types of um, frameworks, I think is all good for our community and everyone's everyone's um, sort of development. So I'm wondering about the idea of most people starting with Kubernetes and starting small mm -hmm. and then maybe scaling up and getting bigger. And what is your plan to like kind of try and capture the smaller, um, I guess, market? Is there a, a plan to do that? Or do you want to just stick with a certain range once it's gone above petabytes? Right. So, so we come from the enterprise side, from the petabyte side, where, you know, we're charging a lot of money for a lot of storage, essentially. Um, but we do see we want to, as I said um, a bit at the start, is like um, people who have storage never decreases, right? It just grows and grows and grows and grows. So, so um, even on the enterprise side, we've always had the philosophy of being able to start small with, with you know, um, VMs or and a small amount of storage, and then as the need grows, you know, that capacity will grow and and we'll make money. Now, um, I want to tie that in of what we see at the Kubernetes. So Kubernetes in itself is a very um, open source driven community and that's good. So, so what we as Cloudian have also been looking at is how can we support and get into that via an open source type solution? And that's, you know, I, I, I don't want to jump the gun, but um, that's um, definitely something that um, we're very interested in and, and are, are thinking about of, of how, to, how to support that and how to um, provide that type for small starts, um, especially, and especially for um, projects that are not necessarily, you know, you know commercial and, and enterprise and making money right now. So, um, yeah, with, yeah with that very mind, interesting you know, question. Yeah, with that in mind, how do you see the development or, you know, the current phases uh, or where we're at right now with, um, you know, storage as a service and how that's going to be evolving? Yeah, so, um, so that, so storage as a service will continue to grow, but what, um, but what we see and what I think a everyone sees is that there's so much data being generated at the edge that, you can't put it into a public cloud, for example, or it's even difficult to put it into a data center in a private cloud, right? So um, um, I could go back to the autonomous vehicle example, right? There's 12, 12 terabytes of data being generated a day. Um, just even with 5G, it becomes really um, unwieldy to start transferring this data to somewhere. So, so compute, so what um, 
what I've been talking about is more data gravity, where the data you don't want to move, right? The data is what you want to move the um, compute and analytics jobs to. Um, so in that respect, um, I think edge computing will sort of become, I mean, the word edge will sort of drop off because that'll be the more ubiquitous type of computing in the future. So um, we have, you know, we have certain customers, for example, that have um, thousands of temperature sensors out in, um, you know, fields, right, that are just generating uh, right now a small amount of data, but you could think um, of that growing and growing. And this whole idea of having to centralize that data and store it all in one place, um, it, it just doesn't scale. Um, so we need both the ability to store data and compute on that data at the edge, at the middle and at the public cloud. And how we develop that architecture, um, I think is still open, but um, one of the things that drew, drew us to Kubernetes is the opportunity where we can make a small edge processor that has some amount of object storage um, and then some amount of analytics um, processing capability and then control through Kubernetes, the say the amount of resources, compute resources, like the, I'm talking about CPU percentage and memory percentage inside that small form factor and then distribute those out, right? So, so that's, that's um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, a where we think this market is going to explode. And in order to do that, you know, we have to get much better at, well, first of all, we have to figure out a lot of things about, uh, on how to do Kubernetes better. Um, we have to really improve our distributed systems um, work. And what I mean by that is, again, the uncertainty and failure management part, right? I mean, if everything's connected and working perfectly, you know, the problem's very easy. But the problem always becomes when, you know, things break, things fail, um, and how to, how to replace it. So... Sorry, long-winded question, but storage as a service will continue to grow. But um, I think what will grow faster is the the sort of um, edge storage and and medium storage that need to be connected to that. Okay, and can we dive a little bit deeper on data gravity? As a non someone who doesn't have a PhD, <laughs> um, could you? I mean, just, just conceptualizing some of these things at first, when I first started reading about it, I was like, okay, we're talking about the laws of, you know, physical science applying to things uh -huh. that I can't see that aren't tangible. Could, could you go a little bit further on that? Well, um, think about it. Um, so for example, um, um, we're doing a small project on air sensor. So you have a bunch of air sensors in different, different places um, and they're collecting data. So, um, the data is collected at these different places out in the environment. And, uh, and one way to solve this problem is to collect all that data, push it all into say the public cloud and then analyze um, that data for say, you know, some trends on different levels of uh, different gases or whatever at, at that public cloud. And that, that works very, 
that makes sense if um, you're not sensitive to um, timeliness, right? Because to transfer all that data itself, some sensors might, you know, be on a, you know, weak, um, you know, network connection is, is very difficult, right? So the more, so if you think about that, it's heavy work to move that data um, across to different places. And, and that's what I mean by data gravity, right? So instead, the easier way to think about it is the data is all being generated out by these sensors. And it's much easier to take my 100 lines of analytics code and push it out to that data and have these little Raspberry Pis run that small compute jobs out there. Um, so, so it's easier to move the compute to the data than move the data to the compute. So that's that's what um, that's what we need to sort of reason about to figure out. You know, what's the right combination of what to do at which level of of you know this the spectrum from edge to private data centers to public clouds and to the extent possible what we want to do is that's, to avoid moving a, the data oh yeah the go data ahead. has this gravity um, so one of the simplest ways to do this is um, filtering so we see a lot of this going on right now where you know 90% of the data or 99% of the data being generated from the sensors, we could just filter out right at the sensor, right? Because, okay, the O2 level is at a nominal rate. So we'll just throw that away. But this one is, is anomalous. So we're gonna send that off for further analysis. So that type of simple analysis that we could do at the edge to reduce the amount of data being transferred and sort of being able to generate Better quality and smarter data as we move along. That's that's um, that's you know a good principle that we want to do. And then the other thing, <laughs> just to finish this point. Good, 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 good. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a loop, is what I wanted to say. So what we want to do is say, do our heavy lift of say machine learning or deep learning. Say uh, we run that training and and construct new models, um, say on a slower loop at, um, at a central place where we could gather data from a lot of different sources. But then once we do that, we compile it into a machine learning model that we could push out um, to the edge processors and they could use that for you know, most of their computation. So, so we have this nice feedback loop where, where the system eventually gets smarter over time. Amazing. I love this idea of, and I'm going to quote you on this, um, it's easier to move the compute to the data than move the data to the compute. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's yeah. not only a matter of time, but it's cheaper. So what, what I say, it's faster, it's cheaper, and it's more secure. So the more secure part often gets um, lost, but what we don't want to do is say um, say we have um, hospital records or medical records. Mm. Think about them being generated at the hospital or the clinic. Every time, 
if we say, you know, hey, um, let's put all of our medical records in this one public cloud, um, that sort of, you know, raises alarm bells for, or should raise alarm bells, I think, for everybody, right? We want to put all our most sensitive data in one location controlled by one company. Um, yeah, um, need to consider that. Re-examine that statement or that decision, <laughs> right. definitely. Yeah, right. Well, you were talking about edge processors and I know that before we had mentioned, we wanted to talk about partially networked edge processors a little bit and um, running compute and storage on them. Was that right. what you were getting into or can you dive into that a little more? Yeah, so that's, that's what um, I'm talking about. So by partially networked, the idea is we need to give up on this idea that everything is perfectly connected to each other and able to communicate at, you know, uh, 5G rates to each other, right? We have, we have these um, edge processors or edge devices that are out there that, you know, um, you have to be able to operate autonomously. I mean, again, back to the Thomas car example, right? You don't want to go back and send all your sensor data back to a, a central place, have them say, okay, um, turn 20 degrees um, now, and then have that sent back through the network, um, back to the car to make that, make that decision. So, so we have to think about how do we operate in these error states as much as possible um, independent, but then also not giving up that idea that we also want to take advantage of when we are connected, how do we get smarter? How do we learn from the experiences of all the other autonomous cars out there and build, build better, better um, ML models that we could push back down at the next update to, to my vehicle? Um, so um, tying it back to Kubernetes, that's, that's what I'm hoping and looking for Kubernetes to be able to help with where we could have these lightweight um, management of compute and storage on the same devices and same edge processors. So um, mm. I'm very um, interested in more um, lightweight Kubernetes type um, applications because I feel that's sort of where the need is and where the problem, where the more difficult problem is of how do we make it as lightweight as possible, this management layer and control layer on top of these processors. You know, when we have um, back at a data center, a hub, when we have, you know, a lot of um, compute resources and reliable networking, you know, it's sort of less important that we have, um, um, you know, um, a management framework around it or an orchestration layer around it. It's, it's much more interesting problem to do it at a, in a resource constrained environment. So, yeah. Yeah, that reminds me, I, you know, I talked with people at my, in, my, in a past life uh, about, they were on a shipping, they were working for a company that uh, did shipping and they would put the models on the edge on these shipping um, boats or ships <laughs> and, mm -hmm they would they would not have connection 
So right. they would lose connection, you know, maybe two thirds of the time. And they just had to make sure that they had that, um, that stability there. And I think that's a, a great example of what you're talking about. Like you can't be expecting it to go from here and then back to some centralized place and then push it back and make the prediction, especially when you're talking about machine learning, it needs to be doing everything right there at the edge. And it's cool to see that Kubernetes, you're, you're bullish on it as something that could be really interesting for that. Yeah. I mean, just um, this morning, I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about collecting um, rock samples from an asteroid, right? And I was thinking, that's the same exact problem, right? I mean, you have this, you have this very laggy control lever, right? That you just cannot rely on to do things, um, do things, but, you know, you want both. Uh, Yeah, that's interesting. Because you, when you can take advantage of it, you want it to be there. Right, right, exactly. So I'm, I'm going to de- default to Bart because I just choked on my water, so I'm coughing. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I got one question. Then, you know, we're almost getting to the end, so we got, we got something to finish uh, up with. But, yeah. uh, you know, tomorrow we're actually opening up a different conversation with some of the people in our community. We got people from about four or five different countries. And we're going to be meeting tomorrow just to talk about the issue of uh, cost control and different mm-hmm. things to keep in mind when running data on Kubernetes. Now, you mentioned several times different things that can come up in the rule in the realm of storage, but in generally speaking, whether it be at storage or other things, uh, keeping costs under control um, in, in Kubernetes, particularly when considering, uh, considering data, any advice that you might want to give to the community about that? Um, it's interesting. Um, you know, um, so, so um, one thing I would say is, um, always think of the cost of operation. So I think the Kubernetes community is, is a bit more advanced and understands this much more than others because of, you know, uh, sort of this DevOps uh, focus and DevOps roots. Um, but um, often I, I see, um, you know, let's say um, groups that are looking, to, you know, they want to push down, say the initial, um, cost of a system, um, you know, to win a bid, but then, you know, it ends up costing more because you're constantly patching it and, and dealing with the problems as you run it into operations. Right. So, so when you look at cost, it's not, um, look at the cost over time. Um, and with storage, it almost always comes you know, um, you know, there's always this natural tension between engineering and um, sales, right? So sales wants the deal, so they want to drive this cost down. But then, what uh, the tension is that you might um, be selling an under under provision system, right? So typically in storage, it's you know your system is so small, is is too small that you're not thinking forward about you know this operational cost of of you know, at what point do I have to expand the cluster, and at what, and how many hours of my storage admin do I need to run that operation and do that and babysit it? So, so um, yeah. So this gives me a good opportunity to talk about this point of of how I'm always talking internally in in, in my company of you know always think of sort of 
um, the cost associated with sort of the long-term, um, long-term, um, you know, uh, of the system, right? The lifetime of the system. And, and for storage, you know, as we said, it, it, you want to build a system that could grow and grow and grow and grow and keep on growing um, to the end of time, right? So having that initial, initial thought when you're looking at the cost and the cost control, I think is, is critical. That's a great point. And a lot of times we talk about these things, it's, uh, sometimes it's a cultural question. And like you said, when you have these, this sort of friction of uh, sales is pushing for one thing, engineering pushes for another, but a lot of things is like, look, we might be thinking about the first couple of months, but ideally we're going to be working with this for years and not have to right. change. Um, right. So I think that's a, that's a great point to keep in mind. Dimitri, do you have any other questions or can I jump to the other? Yeah, no, I know Bart has some cool stuff that he's going to share with us. So feel free Okay, cool. Uh, so this is the first time that we're going to be that we've had a, a graphic recorder with us. And so while we've been talking, uh, a friend of mine named Angel who's uh, helping on the community, he uh, he was jotting down some ideas and, and drawing a couple of things. So I'm going to show my screen really Angel. quickly. Yeah, Great thank you work. very much, Angel. Um, so let's see if uh, everyone can see this. Can you see my screen? <laughs> wow. That, yeah, that so was done. Today. This was done simultaneously. So yeah, we still awesome. will get the quote in. We will still definitely get the quote in there about it's easier to move the compute to the data than the data to the compute. Cause I think that's gonna be a nice sort of title that we can have overarching everything. Um, but uh, I think it was a nice sort of synthesis. I also made sure that Angel got Cal in there. Um, even though you're not wearing a sweatshirt, <laughs> it's very important to have that in there. Uh, so anyway, but this is something that we wanna keep doing from time to time so that we can get sort of these core elements of, of the insights that are being shared um, to make it easier for people to, to jump in because this is what this is all about is building a community and having fun great super Thank awesome you. it's beautiful yeah so in case anyone here is not in our slack channel i'm just going to post a link if you want to join the slack community um because we're we're having all kinds of conversations there and like bart mentioned that groups are starting from there to help discuss ideas around uh cost optimization. We also have, you know, cool videos that we've been sharing along the lines of different metaphors that people come up with that just spark ideas in our minds. And we say, wow, we can make a cool little animation video on that. So if you're not in it, jump in it. I definitely think it is a good use of your time to waste time in our <laughs> DOK Slack channel. And Gary, Man, thank you so much. This has been an enlightening conversation and I really appreciate you uh, sharing your wisdom with us. Yeah, on yeah. a day with so much uncertainty, I think we, we're leaving this with a fair amount of certainty about a lot of really important stuff. So anyway, thank you so much. <laughs> thank yep. you guys. Had a good time. We will see Perfect. you later and hopefully right. um, everybody that's in North America goes out there and they vote and uh, we will have see you all next week. Same time, same place. All right. Take care. Thanks, Gary. Cheers. Bye.